time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome to episode 30 of the Feelin' Film podcast. This week, we wrap up our trio of October-themed episodes with a cult classic and fan favorite. The Cabin in the Woods. This horror comedy by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard defies expectations and turns typical horror movie stereotypes upside down for one fun, crazy experience. It's also surprisingly deep and gives us plenty of heavy questions to discuss, like, is this world worth saving? <laughs> well, now that I've lifted all of our spirits, Patrick, <laughs> hey, how you've been, man? We haven't talked much uh, lately, and I don't even know what you've been up to. So catch us up on what you've been doing. Well, I'll tell you what I've been doing a lot of, and that's working. I've been getting acclimated to a new job, and it's kept me pretty busy uh, from doing things that are not normally uh, part of my routine. But one of the things that I have been doing is I've been revisiting a TV show that um, I actually caught in syndication, The Office, as uh, I imagine a lot of our listeners are familiar with that one, the, the American version with Steve Carell and company. I've seen it all the way through once in, you know, through the, through the Netflix uh, vessel. And for some reason, I just decided to revisit it. And as I was watching it, you know, I'll, I'll knock out a couple episodes here and there on my lunch break or while uh, my wife's putting our son down before we can get our hang time in for the evening. And I got to thinking, you know, Michael Scott, the main character, one of the main characters of the show, played by Steve Carell, is a really interesting guy. And I remember having conversations with uh, some friends of mine about about six months ago about how the the writers of the show over the course of its, you know, half a dozen seasons i can't even remember how many seasons it had in its entirety but how the progression of each character went from like this stereotypical flat haha whatever to more rounded characterizations and so i thought it'd be kind of fun i was this i was thinking about this about midway through the the second season how fun it would be to sort of dissect michael scott and kind of see what episodes gave him more depth you know pushed him out of his regular, um, uncomfortable, inappropriate, (laughs) just whatever comfort zone of a character that he was. And I'm finding it really interesting to watch these episodes and to really kind of pinpoint like, ah, that was a, that was an episode where we got to see a little bit more of the heart of Michael Scott. And I, and I say that because this sounds really deep and and just, you know, philosophical and, and maybe it is, but what I find interesting is I don't get into a lot of sitcoms. Like, I have a hard time really saying, yeah, that's a great half-hour show. The Office has been one of those, for me, that's worth obviously revisiting. But what it does is it's successful in being able to give characters heart, not just playing to their stereotypes that we initially see them play and how they're, you know, how they're presented to us. And I'm finding such enjoyment from, in particular, watching him grow into a person as a character that these other people in the office initially sort of despise and get frustrated with and, and still do throughout the series. But as his character grows and he ends up exiting the show, spoiler alert, 
how not only have they grown attached to him as a boss and as a friend, but how as a as a viewer, I have grown attached to him. And so it's been really interesting. I'm I'm thinking about just I'm I'm taking notes and I'm thinking about maybe writing maybe a blog post about the <laughs> the life cycle of Michael Scott or whatever it is. But it's been really fun, really interesting and really entertaining. So that's been keeping me as busy as it can be with 22 minute episodes here and there. But I'm having a lot of fun with it. That's great, man. I I definitely encourage you to write the blog post because uh, I know that there are a lot of Office fans out there that would probably be very interested in something like that. Uh, plus, I just think your perspective would be pretty cool. I have not watched The Office, so I've got to admit here uh, in public that never, never have, have watched even a full season of The <laughs> Office. I've seen handfuls of episodes here and there when it was you know, playing when I was out on a, a on Navy deployments back in the day, it would play quite often or, uh, you know, just comes on TV all the time, of course, but mm-hmm. I've never sat down and watched through the show. And it's interesting because I've always wanted to pick a show that is like that, that is not necessarily comedically that way, but a show that's like 22 episodes or 22 minutes long. You mentioned something with very short episodes mm-hmm. to work my way through just when I'm kind of, you know, bored or doing something else, throw it up. Um, and I haven't found the right show for me to do that with yet exactly because I, I just, I, I'm very busy, but, mm-hmm. um, but it is something I would like to do. I like the idea of those short episodes. It's not nearly as much of a time commitment, you know, it's not, it really isn't, <laughs> but it, it also brings up an interesting thought about rewatchability when it comes mm-hmm. to TV shows. And I've I've always had a problem with rewatching things, uh, even movies. You know, I don't own a ton because I only rewatch certain movies once or twice every, you know, handful of years as I'm always kind of focused on what's the next thing. What's a new thing that I haven't seen. And so it's, it's always fascinating to me to see what someone is willing to put in a ton of time mm-hmm. to rewatch, you know, right. in your case, that's what you're doing when you could be watching something new. Right. Uh, but you're choosing to go back and do this thing. And yeah. it really takes a, a very deep love of some sort of uh, media type to want to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a comfort level that, that takes place. I mean, I have not forgot about Bob's Burgers. Chad, if you're listening, I'm still uh, picking and choosing. And I want to go through that at some point and it's on my list. But The Office gives me something of, uh, of, a, of, of a comfort level that I know what I'm getting when I queue up an episode. I know what laughs I'm getting. But what makes it really fun and really enjoyable is that I still laugh just as hard at certain points that I remember laughing at the first time around or the second time around. Uh, that's just a, you know, that's a credit of good, good writing. But as a series, uh, much like my love for the West Wing, I can pop in these episodes um, as almost just, you know, therapy. You know, if I want to laugh or if I want to kind of dive into a, a, you know, a certain just arc of, of a story or something, I can I can do that uh, thanks to the the world of Netflix and Amazon Prime and whatnot. But there's a there's definitely a comfort level that that comes with that rewatchability. And for me, there aren't a lot of sitcoms that do that. The Office is one of those that does that for me. Well, that's awesome, man. And it kind of ties into something that I've been doing a lot of in the recent weeks which is replaying older video games. So retro retro. Exactly. That is uh that was why I was, I was initially kind of shocked when you brought this up. Cause I was like, Oh, how, how perfect is that? We didn't even plan it. Um, but 
you know, recently a couple friends and I have, have just experienced a little bit of a retro renaissance, uh, so to speak. And it's funny because we all got different consoles. You know, I have one friend that's very Sega heavy. He, he, his days were Sega. So he got a Sega Genesis and he's been collecting cartridges and playing those games. And I have another friend that just is smart and has never sold a single of one of his consoles in his life. Um, hallelujah to that guy. Cause I wish I was him. Uh, but he, he, you know, he's gone and he's been playing a lot of his Nintendo stuff, uh, going back. And for me, it was PlayStation. So I've been going back and just dabbling in some PlayStation two era games, some PlayStation one era games, uh, and then also playing some some retro uh, JRPGs on my uh, Nintendo 3DS, and just really experiencing things again. And, and right now I'm I'm replaying through uh, a game called Chrono Trigger, which is is one of my favorite and are one of the considered one of the best RPGs ever made. Uh, and it's just a great experience and great story to go through it again. And so it made me think about that when you were talking about The Office, how you know there's my library of unplayed video games is enormous. There are way more out there with way more depth than I can ever get to. But yet here I find myself replaying a story that I know how it ends, but I'm interacting with it from a different perspective. I haven't played through this story since I was 20 years old, maybe, maybe earlier than that, even, you know, 17, 18. And yet now I'm coming at it with a 37 year old perspective, different life experiences. Um, different tone and it just it's a really neat thing uh so so that's what i've been doing i've been playing a lot of the retro games and then as well i've kind of retro gone back to playing some skyrim which is not exactly old but they just put out a new remastered edition of that uh this past week and so i've been diving back in there and just enjoying the heck out of that the one movie that i've gotten to recently that i was able to catch up with was uh, central intelligence and this was one that I actually had bet high on. Uh, I was going to, yeah, I was going to yeah. ask, is that one of the, that was your, that was your comedy for the uh, it, summer movie challenge. It was, right? we always say, we, we said this year that we, we thought there had to be a comedy and that was my pick and it did very, very well actually. Uh, but I didn't get around to seeing it. I don't really go see a bunch of comedies in the theater, uh, but I did find it and, and rented it and watched it. And I got to tell you, man, <laughs> it's something, <laughs> There's something that just happens in this movie and, and movies like this where it's not that good, honestly. Like the story is just dumb and it's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. But the chemistry that exists between The Rock and Kevin Hart is just pure comedic gold. And the movie was a little crude for my taste. I mean, I watched it with my kids. We got through it. It wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't terrible, but um, it was, you know, it was a little like, come on, dumb jokes, just silly stuff. But yet overall it had us, you know, gut laughing and rolling on the floor. We were just dying more often than not because it was so funny. Um, and those guys just interact in such a way that is very unique. Um <laughs> And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's all I had to say about it. I, I thought it was not very good, but we had a really good time with it at the same time. So. <laughs> what an interesting reaction to a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was not quite like the comedy that we're going to be talking about tonight, Tonight, though. Um, the, Which is also an unconventional comedy. <laughs> you know, both, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, there was a little less blood in uh, Central Intelligence. Uh, just, a, there, just a wee bit. <laughs> than there was in this one. So um, so we're going to be talking about The Cabin in the Woods. Um, this is kind of our Halloween movie. We're releasing this on Halloween Day, of course. Um, so we wanted to get a true horror out there. We've done Young Frankenstein. We've done The Nightmare Before Christmas. But neither of those are really even slightly considered a true horror movie. And even Cabin in the Woods is kind of a, you know, uh, it's a little, it's, it's got, it's, it's, it's close. It's in the genre, you know, it's in the ballpark, uh, but it's not a straight horror. And part of the reason for that is, you know, Patrick, you are not a huge fan of that genre, as you've mentioned many times on this show. And, uh, <laughs> and Cabin in the Woods happens to be one of my, you know, it's in my top 50. It's one of my absolute favorite films. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And so I was really excited that you were willing to watch this and review it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to spoil the heck out of this and starting now, because <laughs> I want to know, I am so ready to know what you thought about it. Okay. Well, as you mentioned, and I've mentioned, uh, my default position is I do not like horror movies. Okay. I'm just going to, we're going to step into the confession booth right now and just get that out there. Uh, my last horror movie experience was The Grudge back in 2004, okay? Before that, I remember going to a theater like on a late Thursday night, one of the older theaters that was like maybe $4 or something. It wasn't one of the premier ones. And I was one of three people in the theater, uh, and I went to go see The Ring. <laughs> and at one point, probably five minutes in, I had a hat on, and I pulled the hat down over my head and was watching the rest of the movie uh, with about two inches of, of viewing space in between, you know, the bottom of the screen and the top of my hat. So when The Grudge came out, I actually, I kid you not, I walked out of the theater. I, and I, and I was like, what is this? Because I, my mom, God bless her, she just exposed me to Freddie and Jason and all the crazy 80s slasher movies early on. I, I clearly remember watching The Nightmare, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and all those things as a young kid and actually enjoying them. And so I, I, I was thinking to myself, why do I not like this anymore? And I realized that the idea of jump scares and the ability that the creators have to put images and keep images in my head, um, is just, it's, you know, personally speaking, it's just, it's too much for me. I mean, there are things that I, I mean, I lose sleep over and they stick with me and it's not just about being alone in the dark. I mean, these things are just very vivid <laughs> images. And um, it's an experience that I don't personally enjoy, but I would no way tell someone that they shouldn't enjoy that. It's just it's just not for me. So that being said, I actually really enjoyed this movie. Yes. Yes. I did. Um, it was, you know, for being a, what I'm going to call myself, a horror rookie, there were parts of it that were still kind of scary to me. <laughs> you know, the jump scares were there. And uh, I didn't have a hat on this time. I made myself not wear a hat when I watched this. <laughs> but there was enough in there from the from the very beginning that sort of threw me off my game in a good way. Like I was not set up for, um, well, even just for instance, the title sequence. You know, there's this like weird <laughs> like office scene, almost like a, a decent comedy. And you have Bradley Whitford and, and his partner riding down in a, in a motorized you know, go-kart type of thing. And then suddenly the cabin in the woods and all red blood, bloody red letters. <laughs> it wasn't bloody, but you know, the, you know, it was red letters comes at you. And I was like, okay, what am I, what am I getting into? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
so uh so overall yeah it was a great experience and um as i began to as i after i finished it and i started reading articles on the movie and the kind of the quote deeper parts of it that were being explored i really began to appreciate it a lot more well I'm pumped because I was a little nervous. Um, I had high hopes that you would find it enjoyable. And I thought, you know, I know you pretty darn well. So I assumed that you would most likely find it entertaining. Uh, but I, you know, there was a part of me that like there always is when we're introducing one another to some, some movie that we love. It's a little bit nerve wracking too, because we want to share that experience right and we want that person to enjoy it. And so um, I'm really glad that you did you did like it and, and didn't like have to run out of the room screaming and cancel on me, <laughs> have this, have this BSLO podcast. Um, well, my, my first experience when I saw this, it's funny that you mentioned it because I actually did not like horror either. Um, me being a fan of the horror genre has become, it's, it's really a recent experience for me. Maybe the last couple of years it's, it started to gain steam. And before that, I was, I mean, I was a hundred percent all out when it came to horror. I was not a fan. I did not want to participate in that. Um, like you, I would watch things through my, my hand, you know, my fingers, which by the way is ridiculous because we're still seeing it. We just, we're just seeing, <laughs> we're seeing it like broken up, but it's not like it actually keeps you from seeing what's happening. Um, hey, look, if it, people jump out on the screen, I only see their feet. That's not scary to me. If I just if I don't uh, yeah. see the whole thing, <laughs> you can jump scare me. Just I'll jump scare me with your feet. I'm good. <laughs> nice. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I used to do the same thing. I remember very, very vividly people trying to take me to horror movies and I just, I just did not want to go. And the ones that I saw in the theater were just absolutely terrifying experience for me. Um, and so I saw this movie back then when it first came out. Um, and what I loved so much about it was that it just turned that formula completely upside down and gave me a whole new experience. Um, I've always been one over, in any kind of entertainment by smart, witty writing. Like that is my thing. You know, you and I both are huge Aaron Sorkin fans for that reason. It's dialogue that connects with us more than anything. And, and so we love it. And this film really, it got me in the Drew Goddard fan club. Um, so Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon wrote this movie together. And of course, when Josh is attached, then, you know, you know, it's going to be, a certain kind of style of writing. Um, but with Drew, I had not really, you know, been that aware of his previous work. Now I had watched all of alias and loved it, but I didn't know that he worked on that. Uh, but he was also a writer on Buffy and angel and lost, which we know I haven't seen. Um, and then he wrote and directed, I believe the first season of daredevil. He wrote a few episodes and then he was a showrunner at least for the first season of daredevil. Um, he, he, yeah, he also wrote Cloverfield, um, which another movie kind of about subverting expectations when it comes to a found footage monster flick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he wrote most recently the Martian adaptation, uh, which was fantastic. I thought, and if yes, you've seen that, that makes two of us. Yeah. Yes. So I'm all in on Drew Goddard's work going forward. Uh, I love everything he's going to, he's done. Um, he's actually pinning, the screenplays for the Sinister Six and Robo Robo Apocalypse 
an Isaac Asimov, I believe, uh, okay. film. Yeah. So I'm, I think it's Asimov. Somebody's going to tell me I'm wrong and I'm going to be, maybe it's somebody else, but, um, the, both of those super excited for even more so because he's attached. Uh, but anyway, point being this film really just kind of showed me a different side of the horror genre and in watching the tropes be played with like putty in someone's hands, it made it more entertaining for me going forward when I went back to traditional horror films that actually tried to use these same things, but on purpose and not play with them. And so this movie just kind of became like we were talking about earlier in my rewatchable list. This is, this is one that for me is just infinitely, infinitely rewatchable. So when it comes to a movie like this, you know, you mentioned that you did not like, um, you didn't like horror movies and this one turns you around. What is it about cabin in the woods besides what you've mentioned, the dialogue and everything and, and all that, what is it that gives it its rewatchability for you? Well, I think the fun part of this is to focus on different characters. So, one of the things that happens when you watch it for the first time is you're just being introduced to everyone and you don't, you don't get their full backstory or the full sense of who they are and what they're, how they're being played with, so to speak until it's over. And so when you watch it again, you get that information from the start. So let's just talk about real quick how, we're this whole thing is about deconstructing the genre stereotypes. Okay. And the biggest part of that is with the characters. So we have Kurt, the athlete, right? Mm -hmm. Normal horror movie, Kurt, the athlete, uh, acts like a big dumb jock. Uh, in this one, Kurt is intelligent and has an academic scholarship. So, or Thor, as we like to call him around my house. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so you're already, going with a different kind of characterization for him. Right. The whore in this one is Jules, his girlfriend, but is she really a whore? She's in a committed relationship with him. She has, she's not a cheating. She's, she's a very good, solid relationship with him. And she's not the normal quote unquote slutty character that you typically see in horror films that Mm. would fill this, this character type. We have the virgin Dana, who we learned at the very beginning of the film is sleeping with her college professor. And later she also has a fantastic line when she meets the director (laughs) where the director calls her the virgin. And she's like, uh, me, like you're talking about me. And the director says, we work with what we've got. What we got. Yeah. (laughs) But it's like such a fantastic twist on her character because she's not actually a virgin in this. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we have the scholar Holden, uh, or McDreamy, McDreamy eyes. I don't remember what they call him in the Grey's Anatomy world, but he's a he's a <laughs> heartthrob from the Grey's Anatomy show. Uh, great actor too, by the way. Uh, but anyway, he isn't nerdy, but he's just gorgeous looking hunk who loves football, right? Like he's supposed to be the nerdy guy, mm-hmm. but in theory, and he puts Eric, the glasses on later. <laughs> he does exactly, exactly. Yeah. But that doesn't make him. You know what I mean? It makes him look that way, which is what the right. point of it is. Um, but really deep down, that's not his personality type. 
And then, of course, we have the fool, Marty, um, who is really the most aware of the group's surroundings and situations, despite the fact that he's always constantly drugged by his marijuana obsession. Um, and so for me, focusing on different characters on rewatches is a lot of fun okay. because I know what's going to happen to them later on. And I like to see the transformation of their choices and their personality types in the beginning and how we get to what they ultimately end up doing or how they end up dying in the end. Right. And I think what, what you brought up in describing them is, is interesting because I've mentioned this and I'll probably mention this in every episode, you know, just, you know, whatever it's the idea of challenging our expectations that if you aren't familiar with the horror movie stereotypes or the horror movie tropes, um, you wouldn't necessarily zero in on those particular character types. Like when I finished the movie, I was like, Oh, okay. I get what's happening here. That's not, you know, that, that these guys were not cookie cutter <laughs> people. There was never really a, none of those characters fit who they were being asked to play. You know, they were actually almost, you know, using the, the different kinds of chemical uh, manipulation. They were being forced into a role that, um, they didn't, that they sort of fit in and they were, it was close enough. And the director's line was so, just aptly perfect that we work with what we have. And so, you know, in that moment you realize, okay, they were chosen, but they didn't necessarily have to fit the bill. They just had to get close. And so it led into this idea of these people having to perform, having to become not something they weren't, but just become something different or become more of an extreme version of, of who they, who they were. And when I when I realized that, um, I really began to, to start to feel sorry for them, you know, because characters that, you know, if I'm thinking about thinking back to my 80s horror slasher movies, those characters existed, but I didn't really care about any of them except, you know, the one that survived at the end. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And and now I have a reason to sort of care rationally about the quote jock or the the fool or the whore or you know any of those guys because what i think goddard and 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 we didn't do here is they give them roundness they give them depth um and and that's what one of the biggest surprises for me is that (laughs) i actually have there's actually substance to these characters they're not they're not means to an end even though that was the purpose for them (laughs) in the movie and that's what I think made made the movie enjoyable and interesting for me is that all this just the visual uh, commentary that was being made through the movie by the creators, and uh, it's just very very smart to me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just it's it's interesting to see it play out as well because um, you don't you know when you're watching it for the first time you're not fully aware of what's happening until midway through at least of the film, because we get these, these, uh, these intercut times where we're going down in, I I guess into the compound. I really don't know what to call the underground uh, area into the control room uh, area with, um, what are their names? Hadley and Sitterson, um, our beloved, 
employees down there. <laughs> and it's just not really telling us exactly what they're doing and what's going on yet. Um, and it's not until later on that we can understand that. And so when you watch it again, the first time or on a, on a second, on a rewatch, I think that's another part that you can go back to and you can, mm-hmm. you can hone in on that from the very beginning. And so when they have that banter at the beginning, at the coffee shop, at the coffee pot, it, it's so much more impactful to you the second time around, because now you realize what they're, uh, what they're about to do. And mm-hmm. you're like, Oh my gosh, like they're just sitting here. Like it's another day at the office mm-hmm. shooting the crap at the, the copier, <laughs> you know, only it's a coffee pot. Just, you know, making jokes about Lynn, their fellow employee and, you know, getting ready to go murder some people. <laughs> it's a, it's a really different tone that you watch it with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and back to the characters, I, thought it was just like you said, it's so smart. Um, because when you, when you first meet them in her bedroom and you get to know a couple of them right away, it's, I mean, it is instantaneously turning things on their head right there because, you know, Chris Hemsworth's character comes in, Kurt comes in and, um, you know, you expect that big dumb jock, but instead he goes over to the shelf and picks up this history book and he's like you need to read this one because this will throw him off and he won't expect it and you'll get to look like you know what you're doing um (laughs) and so it's only through the use of extreme manipulation and tactics by the control room that the characters ever begin to act in ways that resemble their horror movie counterparts right right um and it's and it's scary to me because move art imitates life and there's, we live in a world where there is a subtle manipulation constantly put on us, whether it's through advertising, um, through politics, but we are always being manipulated and to some extent controlled. I don't want to say we are f- a void of free will because we're not. And just like, just like in the movie, um, there's a fantastic point where, um, who is it? I think it's Hadley mm-hmm. who, who says uh, that, you know, they have to make the choice, you know, they can put them in the situations, but ultimately they have to transgress in order to be punished. Mm. And I feel like we, we live in that same world. Yeah. A lot of times where yeah. we have all these options around us to transgress, um, and even if we're being pushed that way, it's our free will that, that makes that choice. Well, and I, I can see that. And there there's some truth to what he's saying because it's not like they just picked random people out of nowhere to take on these roles. I mean, they got people that were leaning towards those stereotypes. And, um, of course, I don't know anything about the background of these characters apart from what we were told in the movie. But they were all friends. So it wasn't like they just picked random people because they can't manipulate people that much. They already had some kind of motive to go to this cabin. They all had some kind of, you know, um, what's the the virgin's name? I can't remember her name now. Is it Dana? Dana. Dana. Right. Dana's yeah. the virgin. <laughs> there is no Dana, only Zool. That's weird. Okay, sorry. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I was trying to make a weird connection there. But so, so Dana's, I mean, she's not a virgin, but she's, you know, she's 
you know, in the market to find a boyfriend or whatever. And she's being set up, you know, she's being fixed up with this other guy. And so with, with Holden and so what we have here are, are kind of secondary desires, secondary things that sort of set the stage for these guys to become manipulated. So there's a lot to be said about how smart this organization is to find people who are, um, who are, you know, uh, what's the word? Sub, sub, not subservient, but who are positioning themselves to susceptible. be manipulated. Susceptible. There you go. Thank you. Uh, susceptible to be manipulated in this way. And um, to me, that says a lot about the, uh, you know, the intelligence of this organization, uh, as sadistic as it is. So, yeah. Yeah, it really does. And, and that's one of the big, I would say, questions, too that the movie leaves us with that we don't really get answers to. I was having this conversation with my roommate who was watching it with me for his first time and being a big Cthulhu fan, he was picking up pretty quickly on the ancient ones concept of these old gods that we have to sacrifice to keep at bay and to satisfy and Mm -hmm. such. But, you know, it brings up some of those questions of like, what is the reason for this? I mean, all we really learn is that these old gods have existed for, we don't know how long, but for a while and that they require this annual thing to happen in order to be, I guess, calm down. <laughs> but like, why, what is it about having these specific acts or this, these specific tropes play out and, and sacrificed for them is it that keeps them calmed um and i'm not quite sure what the answer to that is well i don't know the answer to that either but i'm gonna take a shot at it by saying that i think that if this movie is what it's trying to be which is sort of a metaphor and a commentary Mm -hmm. i read a really good article about the fact that we are the ancient ones the movie audience the the audience that expects something from its horror genre. We expect these stereotypes to play out. We expect the torture porn to take place and the gallons and gallons of blood to gush only to find out at the end that someone will or will not survive and that there's a possible sequel <laughs> in the making. And when I read the article that mentioned that if, if we put ourselves as an audience into the role of the ancient ones, it doesn't necessarily answer the question as to why um, these sacrifices are necessary, but it brings up an interesting question, at least one that I had was, what are we expecting as an audience from horror movies? And what's our expectation from movies in general? Um, is there a certain attitude that we have going into movies that we're entitled to something (laughs) that we're entitled to be scared this much that we're entitled to not be able to sleep at night. And that satisfies us. I mean, it asks the question, what makes a successful scary movie that, you know, what, what makes a a scary movie successful as opposed to, I I saw, I guess it was a thread going on Facebook in, uh, in one of the groups that I'm part of that says worst horror movie ever go. And I saw a ton of movies that were out there, and I'm going, seeing that, that's pretty scary. Seeing that, that doesn't seem pretty scary. Um, and and I'm, I'm looking at that, and I'm going, okay, well, <laughs> I'm wondering why. And I think that's the question that 
the creators are asking us to, to ask ourselves is, what is our expectation? Uh, do we do we expect more from the people that are making these scary movies? And and what are those expectations? That may be a loaded question. I don't necessarily intend to get an answer tonight, but it's definitely worth thinking about. I mean, do you have any thoughts on it? Well, I think it's very deep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Coming from a movie. <laughs> and since, just, since yeah, I'm being crazy. related to an ancient one who lives below the uh, surface of the earth, that is also very deep. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it wouldn't be feeling film without a bad pun. No. Um, I, you know, I think that's an interesting concept. I really do. Uh, I, I just, I'm sorry. I'm still kind of rattled at the idea of us being the ancient ones as the audience, because I have a little bit of a different take on it that I'll get to in a momentarily. But um, with regards to expectations in general, I do agree a hundred percent that we always take them in with us. Um, We do look for our films and our entertainment to provide us with something that will meet a need or a desire, I guess not a need, but a desire. And the problem is of course that, you know, everyone's desires are different. Mm-hmm. So you and I can go in and watch the same horror movie and I'm willing to bet quite a bit that we're not looking for the same experience. You know, I may be looking for the jump scares because I want to feel frightened because I want to be heightened with those endorphins running through my body uh, to remind me that I'm alive and to kind of awaken me in that moment. Like maybe that's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're looking for something more subtle. You're looking for more of a psychological terror, mm-hmm. um, something that makes you think something that brings up existential questions about spirituality or um, life after death or any number of things. So we could, we can go in with such different expectations that it's very hard for any creator to match all of them. Uh, which like we've talked about before, I think is why we want to always appreciate everything that we see created because you can only create for you. You can't create for other people. You really can't. I mean, you can try, but it will never be as pure or as, as good in a lot of, in most ways as something that you create for yourself and directors will tell you this. Writers will tell you this. If you listen to enough interviews, they almost always talk about how, you know, they have to make the movie that they want to make. They're not trying to figure out, you know, they hate it when they have to do uh, test screenings, you know, <laughs> to see, well, what will the audience react to this? Well, oh, the audience didn't really connect with that. So I decided, you know, well, we, the studio wants us to change the ending to this. They don't like that stuff because that's not making the movie they want to make. It's trying to meet those expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, when it comes to horror, I, I think a lot of people, um, expect the gore, they expect the blood, they expect the death of what they would call stupid characters, <laughs> people making poor decisions who maybe quote unquote deserve to die. Right, and but, this one okay. doesn't give us that. It doesn't. I mean, it does, it does, it takes it one step further and it says, I think it's asking the audience to expect more. And, I agree. And and I think from a creator standpoint, that's when did this? Can you tell, remind me when this movie came out? Was it two thousand? I do you remember. Don't remember. Okay. Well, I'm not going to try. Late two thousands. Okay. So well, I'm, you know what I mean. The, 
the late aughts. Yeah. $29.99. No. So let's take James Wan, for example. You know, successful director of The Conjuring, The Conjuring Two, two movies. Obviously, I haven't seen, but I know that you have, and uh, we've done a we've done a minisode on the the second one. Uh, you think about the the movies that have come out in the last ten years don't necessarily play off of those tropes anymore. Uh, they are quote based on true stories. They have different types of ways to scare, not just jump scares, but also the um you know just the story itself the fact that it can be grounded in a foundation of of truth i think adds to that layer of of scary and and again i'm i'm saying this as an outsider looking in so if i'm wrong then please correct me but i think the audience has grown up the horror audience has ex- said we want more we want something better and so the paranormal activities come out and the the conjurings and the you know the visit different ways to tell a story that maybe is more foundational to a person's connection to an event or to a person, um, where maybe the, the nightmare on Elm streets and the Friday the 13th have kind of gone the way of the Buffalo in terms of being a truly scary movie franchise. They're more nostalgic than anything else. And maybe <laughs> Cabin in the Woods was the turning point for this. Maybe it was the way that says, look, guys, expect more, demand more. Because to do anything less, to do anything less than that is is doing yourself a disservice to the horror movie industry. And I think it's a it's a nod to creators too, to to be more creative, to be more original, to tell your own stories, to not just use the tropes that have been used for so many years and so many movie franchises. So, you know, I don't know. It's, I, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm thinking that's kind of what's happening. Uh, it, it certainly could be. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, it, there has been a very noticeable shift in the culture of horror films, uh, away from the overly bloody, gory slasher flicks. I mean, they're, they're out there, but not, number wise, uh, like they were in the eighties and early nineties. Um, they, there have been much more cerebral horror, uh, that has been released recently. And, and that's, that's awesome because that's what I like. (laughs) And that's, (laughs) that's what my expectation is for. Um, I don't care for just straight gore, which is interesting because, you know, this one, it kind of stays away from that for a a large portion of it (laughs) until, until we get downstairs, you know, and at that point, all bets are off. And it's almost like they're saying, okay, you know, we're going to reward you because you took this ride with us and you, you stuck with us this long. You let us play with your, your expectations and you let us have a little fun. So here you go. (laughs) And, and then they just throw it all at you. And it's just this incredible, you know, gore pain blood death fest once we're down there in the compound and the monsters are let loose and i, I what i love about that though is that even amid a completely red screen that has you know blood splotches like thrown up against it um it it never feels to me like the film is really truly trying to scare you even a couple of the jump scares they're so telegraphed that you know they're coming. There's one in the 
in the elevator uh, with Dana where she's staring at like a blank yeah. glass. And you know, you know it's coming. Like there's no hiding from it. You just don't know what it's going to be. But you know there's something's going to jump scare you. Mm-hmm. And so it almost feels like they're not really trying, which, you know, is, is, is again, they're, they're kind of making fun here because films that do act like they're trying also telegraph it <laughs> in many ways. Um, but I just think that everything in the movie has this underlying tone of satire and humor to it. Um, that, com- that and it keeps it from reaching like this potentially gross out, terrifying level, uh, that horror genre films normally reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. That was, that's a lot of fun to me because yeah. I, I was worried about it. Honestly, I was worried about those scenes for you. Um, because well, there's, they get, they get horror film. They get yeah. crazy. And and on a personal level, I didn't like them, but that's only because I don't like torture porn. I didn't like – here's what I thought was interesting. In particular, the scene with Dana being basically just manhandled by the um, – the uh, gosh, I can't remember the <laughs> – the the who was the – I don't know, but he's main, a zombie. If you're talking about the zombie. zombie just, yeah, one, of the, one yeah. of the family guys, yeah. And you see it in the background on, on screen – and it's taking place while these guys are having a party. You know, it's like so matter of fact. You mentioned it earlier that Hadley and his partner are just, it's another day at the office. You know, we're going to take care of this and, and do whatever. And that scene sort of epitomized that because, in the you know, you see these guys celebrating and having drinks and stuff like that. And all the time you just, you, you can't help but look in the, behind them on the big screen. And Dana's just getting just thrown around. And you don't see a bunch of it. And then you see the next, you know, couple of scenes later, the whole just complete explosion of, of attacks. And at some point I'm like, yeah, this isn't scary to me. This is just torture point. This is just overall just gore fest. And while I personally didn't really care for it, I can completely respect it and completely understand and, and, and think it's a brilliant way to just can, you know, reinforce what they're trying to do as creators. It, you know, when you mentioned just now that, control room scene um that's another thing that i picked up on in multiple rewatches in a in a much stronger way is the hypocrisy that exists well there's two things a duality here actually that i want to talk about one is a hypocrisy of the people in the control room um you nailed one of the two main scenes that illustrate this where they're just i mean you can't even there's Gosh, I just just re- replaying it in my head. It's so awkwardly t- traumatizing watching that happen on this screen with no sound, and yet there's music playing and they're they're drinking and just having a good time. The other <laughs> scene that illustrates this very well is when they're wa- waiting for Jules to take her shirt off, and we see like fifty people standing up in rows, staring at the screen in dead silence, watching. And then when she doesn't do it, they let out this collective, oh, they're just, they're, 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 they're sad. They, they didn't get to see her take her shirt off. And it's interesting because in that moment, what's happening is she is being manipulated into lust so that she can be punished for it while they're lusting after her. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me almost sick (laughs) in a lot of ways um, because of the hypocrisy there, because, you know, you think about it, it, that could be any of them. It could be any one of us or them. 
that's having these same things happen. Um, There's another side to that, though, where I think that uh, Hadley, uh, Bradley Whitford's character, that is so amazing, by the way. I mean, he's just, he is absolutely phenomenal in this, and he steals the show. He really does. (laughs) He really, he really, really does. But there's a moment here where I think it's right after Jules is killed. Um, before they first start getting excited and they, he and Sitterson kind of have this little speech and they say, you know, they, they, they offer this, not little speech, but they offer this little prayer like thing or like a memorial. They say this, we offer in humility and fear for the blessed peace of your eternal slumber as it ever was. And for a minute, there is this sense of genuine sadness in what they've done, right? You can see it all over their faces for the first time. Those two guys are downtrodden. Mm -hmm. They, they look pained and they look like, man, I don't like what I have to be here doing. And then somebody walks through the door with a bottle of alcohol and is cheering. And you see Hadley flip the switch and go over there, jump up, get excited and start playing the game again mm-hmm. that, that he's got to be excited about it. And I love that moment. We often talk about moments of pause in films and especially in horror films. This is a huge thing that is really needed because sometimes horror films can amp up that tension or thrillers can do the same thing. Um, you just keep you going, 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 but you need something to kind of humanize <laughs> and bring mm-hmm. you down. And so that's one of those moments that really, kind of gives me just a slight little piece of I, I don't I mean I want to use the word redemption it's not really redemptive in nature mm-hmm. but it just gives them humanity um, sure. that they don't have the rest of the way yeah and you mentioned the the prayer to the gods and I wanted to go back to one of the questions we asked earlier about or you asked that um, you know what is the what what's the sacrifice or why is this important and I know that I mentioned my own slant that we were the ancient gods and it was a metaphor, but you said you had something that was more, uh, I do different kind of thing. I do. So I've always thought that we, as the audience are meant to be Marty. And I mean, I think we can be both in this case, based on what your analysis that you read was. Um, but Marty feels like us as an audience watching a horror movie. Um, He's the one that's aware of everything that's actually happening around him. He's the voice of reason. And he's constantly providing us with our own perspective. Um, he's the one that points out that they're not acting like themselves. He specifically says in the cabin, he's like, we don't, we aren't acting like ourselves. And they argue with him. You know, they talk him away, talk him down kind of. And he says, we are not who we are. Which I love that quote, by the way. <laughs> we are not who we are. So deep. <laughs> it really is. And then, you know, early on, he has a very prophetic saying. Uh, I believe, I don't know if it's, I think it's with the Harbinger uh, okay. at the gas station, or, or maybe it's on the way to the gas station or, or after, after the gas station. Some point when they're driving uh, to the cabin, he says, society needs to crumble. We're all just too chicken bleep to let it. Mm-hmm. And 
I mean, hello, <laughs> like that's exactly <laughs> what happens. It comes down to him not being too afraid to let it happen. Right. Right. To crumble. And then another moment when they're locked in the cabin and it, it, this is another, it's one of those brilliant plays on the genre where the zombies are trying to get in the door and you have Kurt, Dana, Marty, and, uh, Holden, Holden. right inside. And Kurt calmly says, he's like, okay, we need to all stay together and we'll get through this. And you flash to the control room and they're like, oh no, 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 no. Give me like 20 CCs of blah, 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 blah. Right. (laughs) And they walk through this hallway and Kurt's like, huh, you know, I think maybe we should split up. And Marty just looks at him and he goes, really? (laughs) And like, that's us, right? He's us the whole time through the movie. We get to experience it through his eyes because he's the one who sees the man behind the curtain. He's the one who calls them out as being puppeteers when the rest of them are not knowing. And all the things you normally would scream at the movie during a horror film, like Marty voices those. And so I love relating him to us as an audience. Oh, absolutely, man. And I can, I can totally see that, that vantage point. And I, I I picked up on that. Um, he is, he is a character that, and and I love how they explain it away near the end where, they basically say it didn't have an effect on him because he was so high the whole time that the drugs in his system counteracted any kind of any kind of chemical things that were going on. And so ironically, the one who was just, you know, doped up out of his mind was the one that actually had the clearest sense of uh, of of uh, of perspective. And so. I love how they did that. Yeah, you're, you, it's almost surprising that someone hasn't picked this up as like a pro marijuana commercial. Seriously, and if if you if you have to, then get one of those uh, customized um, drinking. Oh my goodness, bongo. dude! I, let me tell you, the Extendabong coffee cup is awesome. I I'm not a a marijuana smoker by any stretch of the imagination, but that thing was <laughs> very very cool and. Multi, came in multi-useful, right? I was gonna say it was practical. It was very he, practical. He, he knocked out some monsters there. <laughs> yeah, you need to you need to kill a zombie uh, family. Use the extend a bong. <laughs> uh, one of the other characters I wanted to make sure we we briefly hit on this. Uh, one of her, the interesting created uh, ways this character was used was Dana, right? And so that's the virgin and. In other horror films, especially the ones that you talked about seeing, you know, in your early years in the 80s, the virgin is the helpless one, right? And in this one, Dana is the strong, decisive fighter. She's the one with the fiery will. Um, She's the one that is, you know, going after the problems instead of trying to run from them. Um, My son, who's 11 actually picked up on this and I thought it was brilliant because I hadn't noticed it. But while we were watching it, and again, this is back to rewatchability. This was his second time seeing it. So he's kind of picking up on things that maybe he didn't get to notice the first time. Cause he was so interested in seeing the progression of the actual story. But early on, he said, dad, Dana goes everywhere first. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, she, every time they go somewhere, she's the first one. He's like, she was the first one to go in the cabin. I was like, okay. And so he started calling it out every time it would happen. Well, let me tell you, man, Dana is the first to go in the cabin. Dana is the first to go in the cellar. 
Dana is the first one to go down into the basement when she and Holden try to escape the zombies. Dana is the first one to go into the elevator with Marty. Dana is the first one to go into the hole in the wall that is created in the compound when they have to go try and escape. She leads the way in this film the whole way through. And it is brilliant to see that like subtly portrayed because she's never given the victim treatment, which is what, you know, typical horror movie would do with the quote unquote virgin. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, she's our strongest character. You know, it comes down to her making the decision with the gun in her hand. Is the world worth it? Right. Mm -hmm. Is the world worth saving? And she's the one that has to ultimately until the werewolf shows up, which is really, really (laughs) cool by the way. Um, She's going to have to make that decision. And that, I want to ask you that question. The world that Cabin in the Woods gives us, the world that it portrays, is it worth saving? Hmm. It's one of the questions that I honestly could not answer after watching it. Um, Because you try to make your what pro-con list (laughs) and you try to think about the the outcome that could be and i almost wish that we didn't see the big giant hand come out of the cabin oh it's it's a great shot man no no no, it's it's a great shot but for the purposes of the story i almost wish it would have stopped with uh with marty's last line like that would have been a cool weekend and then it just fade to black right and give you that you don't know you don't know if the gods were appeased or if well by rule they weren't but if they had, you know, if it was because at some point I, I was thinking, maybe this is all a farce. Maybe somebody else is pulling the strings. Maybe the ancient gods don't exist. Maybe the director, played by the ever uh, awesome Sigourney Weaver, is is really the one pulling the strings. Maybe she's the one in charge of everything because she is the, quote, director. And so when I think about the corruption on that end versus, you know, the what what could happen anyway? I mean, it, it's just, it's hard. It's hard to, to, to make that choice because you know, it's the idea you're damned. If you do, you're damned. If you don't, I mean, she was right. I think in saying that, um, you, you can either die with them or you can die for them. You know, I think that's a very valid statement that, that she made. And, um, you know, I honestly don't know what they actually did. <laughs> they die with, they die for. So I, it, it's it's a gray area for me. What about you? I'm I'm in the same way. I mean, I I actually you you brought up the quote that I was going to bring up where Marty says maybe that's the way it should be if you've got to kill all of my friends to save the world. And she <laughs> and she like you said she says you can die with them or you can die for them, which one of my favorite lines in the entire movie because that's the one that gets me thinking. And there's a there's a strong part of me that goes man you kids are being kind of selfish. I mean, they say yeah. that when, when, when they're running down the hall and Sigourney Weaver, the director is, you know, patching in audio to them. She tells them, she's like, listen, I know this sucks and I'm sorry that it was you, but would you please just make this easy and just die already so mm-hmm. we can get this over with? Like right. there's a point to that. <laughs> there, there is, there really is. Um, and but, then there's a point to what Marty is saying, which is if this is the way the world is going to be, you know, yeah. maybe not Truman. Actually, there's, this is alluded to earlier in the movie as well with Truman, which is the newbie, you know, the security guy. 
who is down in the compound and he's talking and he's like monsters magic gods and lynn says uh you get used to it and truman says should you and it's like there you go again you know should should we get used to this mm-hmm. and you know it, maybe we shouldn't i don't know but i the, i love that it makes us think about it go ahead well and it does only because if you think about it had we not gotten investment in these characters early on had we not become sympathetic towards these characters that wouldn't have even been a question we would have been like yeah make the sacrifice save our world you selfish teenagers or you selfish college students but because of the success of what goddard and and whedon did in allowing us to care for these characters and and feel and have empathy for their manipulative for the manipulation that they were being exposed to that question then becomes very gray it's not black and white anymore and it's just another another point to the success of what they tried to do with this movie i completely agree um before we keep moving on, uh, I just wanted to point out a couple quick things that I just absolutely love about this film that are, are things that I think lead to, you know, those moments that we remember, um, that will help it gain the cult status that I think it is starting to gain. And for me, like the sound editing is very solid. It's very good. Um, mm-hmm. when they first open the cabin door stands out, there is like a, I, I want to say almost like a 30 second shot of that door slowly being opened by Dana and the creaking is nonstop just as it's <laughs> and it is, it is like nerve wrecking uh, listening to that. The cinematography is nothing spectacular, but the moments when both the Eagle and Kurt smash into the force field are top notch. Um, I remember <laughs> watching this the first time and my roommate called it, He's seen a lot of horror movies. I don't know about you. It, I know that it caught me off guard. I was not expecting because you get this big lead up to this big moment, this inspiring speech. He's like, I'm, you, know, you have Thor, for goodness sakes, on a motorcycle saying, I'm bringing back cops. And if I get injured, I will limp to get them and I will bring them back. And then he'd smash. And then you, and, <laughs> and then it doesn't like just, the bird. <laughs> and it doesn't just smash. You see his body like doink, 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 doink all the way down, down the force field. I mean, it just, it's like, it turns into this, oh man, <laughs> you know, moment. And, and so I love that. Um, <laughs> I love, 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 love that. And then of course the merman, like getting to finally see his merman. Um, and then Hadley's death right before he dies, just saying, oh, come on. And again, a perfect horror movie stereotype here. Of just like, man, like, what are the odds, right? Right. The, the odds are terrible <laughs> that you're actually going to get killed by the merman. Um, <laughs> but that's the point, right? And it was just yeah. really well done, I thought, there, too. Unexpected, but then when it happened, it made perfect sense, right? It did. And again, it, 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 it's almost, it's that way of turning a death into a humorous moment. It was more right. funny than it was tragic. Absolutely, man. Well, let's uh, let's dig into our connecting points. I think we're about ready to to wrap things up, and I wanted to to dive into the to one moment that I think stood out to me. I don't know if it's the same way for you, um, but uh, for me, it had to be the moment that Dana and Marty were in the elevator, being exposed to all of the monsters that didn't get released when they were in the cellar. And what I loved most about that scene um, was actually two things: one, the nonverbal emotion that was being emitted from 
sawblade guy. I don't really know what to call him. He, he reminded me of, of Pinhead, but I couldn't. I didn't know if he had actual an actual name. I don't think he does, but it reminded me of Pinhead too. I think it's supposed to be a playoff Pinhead. That's why he has the little device. The little device, right? So, so you know, we see we see him, and he's just looking at her, and there's like this. There's there's no talking because he can't hear her and she can't hear him. And he's not trying to talk to her. But in that nonverbal communication, it's if he was saying, this isn't our fault. <laughs> We're the victims here. And the other thing was that what she said when she was actually looking at him, that she just, she just, she watched him and she said, they made us choose. They made us choose how we die. And you mentioned earlier the fact that Hadley had said that, I think it was Hadley that said, they have to choose in order for it to, to basically matter. And I love the fact that she said they made us choose. Not they made us choose this or they made us choose that, but they made us choose how we die. Mm-hmm. As if she already understood that they were going to die, they were the ones making that choice. So the choice to die was not theirs, but the choice in how to die was. And then it was followed by her screaming and banging her hands against the glass as the monster just looks at her with this blank expression while the elevator pushes him away. And then we see that big reveal of all the other monsters that have been like encaged in this big giant, like just zoo of, of different types of monsters. And I, I actually paused the, the movie to try to see if I could recognize any of the other monsters. That's awesome. And, the fact that you did that says a lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for the first time in this movie, the monsters look like the victims equally as much as the five main characters. And so not only have I had up to this point, have I had empathy for the five main characters, but in this moment, now I have empathy for the monsters. So when they get released and they just start going after everybody, I'm really, really not that sad. (laughs) I'm really, I'm I'm not laughing, but it's almost like a, a revenge tactic. And I'm going kind of like kind of pumping my fist a little bit and going, yeah, this is freedom. And, uh, and you know, but to make me feel that in a horror movie slash comedy movie is just monumental. And, uh, and, and I was really blown away by that. I think so too. And, uh, it's the same moment for me. I don't have a ton to add because I think you nailed it and you perfectly, um, explained why it's a connecting point in the film. Uh, it's it's Dana and Marty to a large extent that we connect the most with, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're our final two characters that we get to go into that elevator and, and explore this whole scenario with. And so we have our strong fighting character. We have our voice of reason, our audience perspective. Um, and it's just so meaningful because of what you have pointed out the entire podcast, which is we actually got to care about them. Um, and there's so many other horror films, um, even well done horror films where I would never care about the characters as much. Um, I wouldn't root for them. And for a moment, I also think that when we're going down in that elevator, as awful as it seems, and as the realization of what is happening is kind of starting to come over them. There's a modicum of hope, right? It's like, well, you know, okay, we don't know what they're going down into to face, but they're together 
and they're strong and they're going to, they're going to face it. And then we get that pullout shot. Right. Mm -hmm. And we see just how much is down there. We see all of the monsters. And I think at that moment is when it all becomes very real to me that I don't think anyone's making it out of this. And I don't think that we're going to be the heroes. Uh, ultimately we may, we may try, but I don't see a scenario in which you get out of this alive. Right. Um, and so for me, it's very powerful because that's the moment when I kind of almost have to emotionally prepare myself to lose those two characters, right? which makes well, their, their final moments even better to me. Absolutely. And as I was listening to you say that, I, I got to thinking that pan out shot not only showed us all the monsters, but with them being in the center of it, it's as if they were caged as well. Mm-hmm. Like they were, they were, they were part of the the victims that had been manipulated in various ways. And so at, at that point, we got a visual equal equal equivalent uh, with with both the two main characters and the monsters that they were fighting, or that they would have been fighting. That yep. they were all equal at that point. They're all they're all tools. They're all being used exactly by others. So to to appease the the, mm-hmm. the ancient gods. Yep. Well, it's good stuff, man. Um, you know, we didn't get into this too much. I, I wanted to, to dive a little in, but we, uh, I, I've always been curious about where those monsters came from. So, <laughs> you know, one day, hopefully maybe if, maybe if a listener out there has some theories, I would love to hear your listener theories on how did we get this collection of monsters? Is this because these old gods exist, do all of these monsters exist and they were rounded up and caught and put into these cages? Um, or were they created by the old gods? Like how did, how did we get these monsters? That's a, that's a big question mark that I haven't, uh, fully come to an answer on. So I'm asking for you guys to fill me in on what your theories are. I'd love to hear them. Absolutely. One cool piece of trivia on this one too, before we move uh, to the end here is that when Marty is in bed in the cabin, uh, when he goes solo and <laughs> it's always funny about these movies, by the way, um, why is there a fifth wheel? Like who, who does that? Who brings a fifth wheel first? Like I am never going to be the fifth wheel. If, if my friends are going to a cabin and there are two couples essentially, or I guess in this case, there's not technically couples. So that maybe that's how they get away with it because Dana and Holden aren't technically a couple. They're trying to set them up. But like, if I know that's going to happen and I'm very clearly that fifth wheel, like, why am I going? It's, I'm just setting myself up for this awkward experience. But anyway, <laughs> so Marty goes into bed and he's reading before bed and he's reading a book called little Nemo. And it's actually based on a comic strip called little Nemo in slumberland. Um, it's very, was a very popular old comic and it was about a boy uh, who would, it followed his each, each uh, comic strip followed this boy who was having a fantastic dream and it was always interrupted by his awakening in the final panel. And all I got to say about that is like, hashtag so meta. <laughs> this is true. This is true. I didn't pick up on that. I did read some trivia about Marty because he seems to be the most interesting character to to talk about. That if you notice, he uh, <laughs> he he never like, in particular the, the lake scene. Uh, he doesn't jump in <laughs> with the other people because. In actuality, the actor was actually like ripped. Like he was like incredibly in shape. In fact, like more in shape than the other actors. <laughs> and so they intentionally kept him in baggy clothes 
so that they could continue to sell the idea that he was just sort of a, you know, kind of a, kind of a junk, junked out like doper or whatever. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. That is there's good stuff. There's something on the rewatchability that you can check out is like, he never, he never like goes into the water or is ever seen without like baggy clothes on. That's pretty cool. I'm glad, <laughs> glad you brought that up. <laughs> so anyway, if you guys want to continue the discussion, we'd love for you to, uh, to find us out there on the social webs, social media. Uh, we're at Feelin Film, F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M on Twitter and at facebook.com slash Film. You can also get to our Facebook group from there. Um, if you want to check out the website, feelinfilm.com is coming at you, you know, whenever. And if you want to engage with me particularly, you can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram with that same thing as well as Facebook and this is patch.com. Uh, so coming up in the next few weeks, we are heading back to the theater. We spent much of October, in fact, all of October hanging out at home, but we are incredibly excited about, uh, some four or five new episodes that are going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks, beginning with Hacksaw Ridge. I know you're excited about that one, Aaron. I'm very excited about that one. I've, that's one of the few <laughs> movies I've avoided trailers on. So, yeah, as, as have I, but mostly because I haven't had a chance to watch any trailers, <laughs> except for Logan. <laughs> except for Logan, which except is a very good Logan. trailer. It's well worth watching. <laughs> yes, the twelve times that I saw it, it was great. Um, you can also look forward to minisodes of Doctor Strange and Arrival, as well as a full episode on the Oscar contender, loving from our favorite director. Jeff Nichols. So it's a perfect time for a date to the movies. Yes, it is. And that is a, it's going to be an awesome slate the next two weeks. It's going to be crazy, busy, but I'm excited about recording those episodes, excited about seeing those movies. More importantly, um, it's Oscar season is hitting us right now, hard and heavy. Um, these films are going to be getting crazy buzz. And uh, so most of our November and December will be spent in the theater with a couple of home picks sprinkled in just to uh, keep our pocketbooks in check and keep our, <laughs> keep our, keep our uh, schedules uh, sane to some extent. Uh, for me, if you want to connect with me online anywhere, you can find me at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. That's Twitter, Facebook, etc. cetera. Uh, also very active on the Twitter for Feelin' Film and the Facebook group, which is the best place to be. Uh, if you have not done it yet and you do love the show, iTunes reviews are an awesome way to tell us that and to help share your experience with others so that they are more likely to find the show and come join us in the conversation in the Facebook group. Uh, and maybe you'll make a new friend. So uh, I do plan on reading some of our more recent iTunes reviews here in the next episode or two. So this is your fair warning. If you'd like to hear your review, read on the show, go ahead and leave us an iTunes review and that might happen. Uh, we're very, very humbled by the last couple that we've received. And so we wanted to share those with everybody. Absolutely. But that is it for this time. I uh, guess we're probably going to be taking a break on horror for, oh, 11 months. Uh, <laughs> unless I can <laughs> talk Patrick into it. Uh, Not but likely. Anyway, <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, until next time, stay positive and keep feeling film. <laughs>